All right, Christians. Good morning. Well, I heard that. Uh, I heard that Herb has been. Uh, he's been a little concerned because he's he's kind of thought that Nancy's having trouble with her hearing. So uh, when he was at the doctor, he shared his concern with the doctor, and the doctor said, well, you know, you could kind of give her a test to test her out to see how it's, to see if it's really a problem or not. So he thought, okay, next time we're at home, I'll, I'll give her a little test. So the next day, uh, Nancy's out in the kitchen making dinner, and Irv's kind of walks, you know, 30 feet behind her and says, what's for dinner, dear? And he gets no response, and he thinks, well, this is kind of far away, so maybe there's not a problem. So he moves a little closer, about 20, 20 feet away, and he says, what's for dinner, dear? Still no response. So now he's starting to get a little more concerned, and so he moves to, you know, to 10 feet away. What's for dinner, dear? Still no response. Five feet. What's for dinner, dear? Still no response. And then he moves right behind her and says, what's for dinner, dear? And she turns around and says, for the fifth time, we're having fried chicken. <laughs> so the test was unsuccessful. Exactly. And, oh, and, and by the way, uh, it's fried chicken this afternoon, and everyone's invited over right after, right after church. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, last week we were in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and we were discussing Paul's illustrating a principle. And he was illustrating the principle that when it comes down to our rights as Christians and our concern for a brother's welfare our concern for a Christian brother's walk, Christian walk, that our rights should take a back seat. And he illustrated that by arguing and showing clearly that he had a right as an apostle and as a preacher of the gospel, he had a right to be supported by the gospel, that uh, the Corinthians should be supporting him, but that he did not exercise that right. And his it was a free choice. He freely chose that he would not accept any support from the Corinthians, and his reasoning being that he didn't want to hinder the gospel. He didn't want anybody to have anything on him by and say, well, yeah, you're just doing it for the money, or you know, whatever people might say. So again, it, 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 the conclusion was that this is not a, a law for all preachers. It, it was just his free choice to be able to say, I have the right to be supported by the gospel, but I freely choose not to exercise that right for, for the sake of others. As J. Vernon McGee said, you have a right to swing your fist wherever you want to, but your rights end where my nose begins. Another way of looking at it. Okay, at the end of, we went to verses 1 through 23 in 1 Corinthians 9, and, and this well, this week we're going to continue on in 9 and just do the last few verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 9, starting in verse 24. And 
Paul is going to continue on and illustrating another principle in these few verses. The principle being that discipline is required to be in spiritual shape. So first of all, let's read those few verses at the end of chapter 9. Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize. So run that ye may obtain. And every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, so fight I, not as one that beateth the air. But I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. Okay, in these few verses, Paul is using as an example, the, they, they were called the Isthmian Games. They were so called because they were held on the Isthmus of Corinth. Corinth was, I had to look up Isthmus because geography wasn't my top thing in school. And uh, an isthmus is a little stretch of land that connects two larger bodies of land. And the little isthmus of Corinth was where these Isthmian games were held. They were held every two years. And the Corinthians would have been very, very familiar with these athletic games. So using them as an example would have been a, uh, an obvious thing to do uh, in Corinth. And the prizes that these athletes that were the run, I'm not sure what all went on at the games. Uh, it was probably similar to the Olympics. Uh, but the prizes were palm branches and wreaths of parsley. Uh, they were very, very perishable crowns, obviously. And then I guess the other, uh, the other prize would be the cheers of the crowd. And as we all know, that can be and is very temporary also. So he's using the example of the prizes that they are competing for in these games. They're very, very temporary prizes. As a side note, before we get into this a little bit, some, some people have tried to use these verses. Uh, well, let me say this. Believe it or not, there are people that actually will um, that have a problem with the whole concept of competitive sports. And uh, biblically, speaking, we'll have a problem with competitive sports and, and we'll argue against the nature of competitive sports. And I, you know, my intent is not to get into that here, but I, I will say that uh, at times people trying to defend the whole concept of competitive sports from the scriptures will turn to this scripture. And, and let me just say that I think that's completely wrong that they do that because the intent here is not to talk about sports or that it's good or bad or anything. The intent here is just to strictly give an example. And so, to me, it's, it's, it's an example of people stretching for something and wanting to find something in the Scripture that's not there. And again, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to get into the whole issue of sports, competitive sports, right or wrong here. But I just wanted to point out, kind of as an aside, that there are ways to twist the Scripture, as we all know. and You can do that, and people will clearly and do it. Like the old saying about statistics, they say if you torture statistics, they'll confess to anything. So you can prove anything with statistics, and you can probably prove just about anything you want with the scripture if you torture it sufficiently. 
So that was a, a side note. Now I wanted to just get into looking at these uh, few verses and uh, talk about what Paul's talking about here today. So in verse 24, he starts off using the example of athletes running in a race as an illustration. And he says clearly that in a race, only one person can come in first. And only one person gets the first place prize. Uh, but his... Uh, his, his implication here is that as Christians, he's using this, this concept of running in a race and, and our Christian life as running in a race, using that as an example. In, in our race, everyone can come in first. Everyone can win the prize. Everyone who is a believer can win the prize. Uh, in, a, in a real race, only one can win the prize. And he's going to use that to go on when he's talking, when we'll talk about that in a little bit here, when he's talking about the, the uh, when they're preparing for the race, uh, how much they will, you, how much they will deny themselves while preparing, so that only one person can win the prize. And oh, by the way, the one that wins, he gets a wreath of some kind of um, vegetative material that's going to dry up and turn into you know nothing in a few days. That's that's the prize that they're they're going after. Okay, so we might ask the question, what? prize exactly is he talking about here for Christians? And I thought it was interesting what was talked about in the, uh, the first service, the part of it that I was here for, um, that came up, ta- uh, talked about self-discipline and, and reward. I think, John, I think you were mentioning some of that. I can't remember who said it exactly, but I remember thinking, man, it's uh, I shouldn't be amazed when God works things out, but we just, you know, for all the time we've been in 1 Corinthians and we just happen to land here today in 1 Corinthians 9 and then somebody's moved by the Spirit to speak about things that fit right in with, uh, isn't God great? I don't know why I should be, be amazed about that. He does that kind of thing all the time because it's his plan. But, uh, but he's talking about rewards, rewards for the Christian. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in, in, in a minute. I wanted to focus, first of all, on this concept of running. Because he talks about running in the race. And this word that's used for running here, I mean, it literally means to run or to strive or to give effort. But it's used here of persevering activity in the Christian course with a view to obtaining the reward. And I thought about that, and I thought, you know, sometimes we 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 can over-spiritualize things and think of this whole idea of receiving a reward for something and thinking how worldly that is. And yet it's a scriptural principle. God has, has, has laid it out here that there are rewards for Christians, and, and he's talking about them here. And that's the prize that we can all obtain. And again, as Christians, we can all obtain that prize. Uh, we, we don't necessarily, you don't get it automatically, just by being a Christian, you get salvation. You know, if you're a true believer, then you get salvation, and everybody gets salvation. But the rewards he's talking about here aren't, don't necessarily get given to all believers, but can be achieved by all believers. There are some other related verses in the Scripture that talk about running. We'll look at a couple of them here. Uh, Romans 9.16 is one. He's talking here about God's sovereign mercy in these verses right around 16. I'll say start in 14. 
He says, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. And I bring up that scripture to point out the fact that when he's talking about running in this race or living our lives, our Christian lives in a way that's pleasing to God, we are not talking about salvation. You know, it's, it's emphasized here clearly, and so I, I hope we all know it. Uh, you cannot earn your salvation. And then again, we're not talking about that today. We are talking about believers who are believers and are saved who are continuing on and living their lives and, and at, in order to please God. And that's what we're talking about. And the rewards that will, will be received that we'll talk about in a minute here are not, it's not salvation. Um, it was pointed out that in these games, these Isthmian games, you know, what were the reward that the runners were trying for? It was not to become a Greek citizen. Because in order to participate in the games, you had to prove that you were a Greek citizen. It's the same theory. Uh, the rewards that we're talking about here for Christians are for Christians. You have to be a saved believer to begin with at first in order to obtain these rewards. Just like in the games, they had to be they had to prove they were Greek first before they could partake in the games. But then they could achieve the, re, uh, the rewards afterwards. Um, let's see. Let's turn to Galatians 2. It's another verse, Galatians 2.2. 2, another verse that talks about uh, running. This concept, using the same word run that, that we talked about, meaning the, the persevering. It's used as a metaphor. It's not really running, but it's used as a metaphor, meaning persevering in our Christian activity uh, with a view to obtaining the reward that God has set up before us. Um, he says at the beginning of Galatians 2, Then 14 years after, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and took Titus with me also. And I went up by revelation and communicated unto them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to them which were of reputation, lest by any means I should, should run or had run in vain. So he's kind of, he's been, he's been off preaching to the Gentiles for many years, but took this opportunity to come share with the elders there just to, to kind of validate that he had been running in an appropriate fashion. He'd been preaching the appropriate gospel to the Gentiles. So again, it's, it has nothing to do with salvation. It has to do with what he was. Was he uh, living his life out in a way that was the right manner? I'll flip over a couple page, pages to Galatians 5, 7, where he's talking to the Galatians and questions them about their falling back into legalism and says in 5.7, you, you did run well, who did hinder you that you should not obey the truth? And so again, saying you were living your life well, you, you knew that salvation was by grace, and, and you were living your life out as a result of being a follower of God, and now all of a sudden you're getting caught back into the legalism of the, of the uh, Mosaic law. And, and that's, you know, throughout Galatians, we're not, I'm not reading all of Galatians today for the sake of time, but that that, again, is what he's talking about. Flip again a couple pages to Philippians 2. <clears throat> uh, so start, say, 14. 
where he says, Do all things without murmurings and disputings, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. So again, he's talking about, I, I want you to be living out your Christian life in such a way that is pleasing to God, and it will be proof that I have not labored in vain among you. I've led people to Christ, and I've taught you and discipled you, and, and, and uh, it would prove, again, validate his ministry that he was not running in vain. I'm probably overdoing it here, but let's one more. Hebrews 12 is a familiar verse. Hebrews 12, 1. <clears throat> because, and this one ties in very, very nicely with the verses today because it talks about some of the uh, self-denial and discipline that is required as a Christian. Hebrews 12, 1. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. So again, <clears throat> you know, I don't mean to beat a, beat a dead horse, but uh, it's clearly, again, Christ is the author and finisher of our faith. He is the provider of our salvation. And then we uh, are li living our life. We need to run as uh, believers, live our lives in a way that is pleasing to him. And what did I do with my pages? I don't know, All right. <clears throat> All right, so that's what he's talking about in verse 24 of 1 Corinthians 9, uh, using the example of runners in a race. And he goes on then in, in verse 25 to say, And every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible crown, implied crown. Uh, there's really two thoughts here in this verse. The first one is about temperance or uh, other translations, self-control. Uh, it's an interesting word. The, the word for, that's, that is translated temperate here in verse 25 is the Greek word from, from the word meaning strength. It had occur, and it occurs in a few places in the New Testament, Acts 24, 25, Galatians 5, 23, 2 Peter 1, 6. Uh, it is it is translated as self-control in the Revised Version. Again, we talked about temperance versus self-control. Uh, and it talks about the various powers bestowed by God upon man are capable of abuse. The right use demands the controlling power of the will under the operation of the Spirit of God. So that is the, the, the whole idea of self-control here. This is not something that is wholly done by God. It is not something that is wholly done by humans. It is, again, the, uh, the controlling power of the will. That means you and I have a choice in this matter, and we have a responsibility in this matter. Uh, the controlling power of the will under the operation of the Spirit of God. In Acts 24, 25, let me turn there fast. I think I've said this before, but they claim that in the old days, the 
The Puritans would know their Bible so well that if given a scripture verse, they could turn there in two seconds. Any verse in the Bible. Not sure if I believe that, but <clears throat> that's what I heard. Acts 24, 25 says, And after certain days when Felix came with his wife Drusilla, which was a Jewess, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. That's 24. And 25, he says, And as he reasoned of righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come, Felix trembled and answered, Go thy way for this time. When I have a convenient season, I will call for thee. It's an interesting sequence here because he was reasoning about righteousness, which is God's doing, providing righteousness through Christ. And then temperance, which is man's response to God's doing, self-control, and living out again as what Paul is talking about, living out our life in a way that, that is pleasing to God. Um, this word temperance is used, figure, oh, I, I'm sorry, and then it's also used in uh, 2 Peter 1.6. If we flip there, uh, we're going to flip, well, or listen to a lot of scriptures today. 2 Peter 1, 6. It's not there. 2, 6 is not 1, 6. There we go. We're um, starting in 5. And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to your virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness. It's an interesting sequence here. It talks about knowledge adding to your knowledge temperance. And this is kind of talking about the, you know, what is learned has to be put into practice. Again, we can, uh, we can learn an awful lot in our heads, but it's really not learned until it comes out in our actions. And so the self-control that he's talking about here, a word used figuratively of the rigid self-control practiced by athletes with a view to gaining the prize. Uh, I just, uh, there's a guy in my department who just went and ran Grandma's Marathon. And uh, he's a young guy. He's probably in his late 30s. But he told me, and Jerry, I'm sure you're well aware, that the training for, you don't just wake up one day and say, hey, I think I'll go run a marathon tomorrow. Um, he, he, he told me that it's like an 18-month training period to run this marathon, to get ready to run this marathon. The first time he ever ran one, he said, I only trained for like, I forget, eight or ten months, he said, and I wasn't ready. The last ten miles, I walked and ran and died the last ten miles. So, uh, But here, here was a guy whose only prize in running this marathon was just the self-satisfaction of doing it. He wasn't going to win it. You know, the winners run it in a little over two hours, right? And he, his best time was like three hours and 45 minutes, which is still pretty good. I, could, I, I don't think I could ride my bike in that. Well, maybe I any bike I have is going to have a motor on it, though. So I think I could, I think I could make it in in uh, less than three hours and forty five minutes. But but here's a a young guy who who just simply wants to run a marathon just to say he can do it. I mean, probably it's just kind of bragging rights, I guess. I mean, that's the prize. And yet, um, and, and these are fairly small sacrifices he made, but. About a week before, they had a department outing or an area outing for us, and there was volleyball and different things, and they had the contest between the departments. And he said, well, I don't want to play in the volleyball unless you absolutely need me because Saturday is the marathon. I want to make sure I'm in good shape. And, uh, and then he's talking about the different things that he eats, you know, the last week before to prepare and the, the amount of water that you drink to hydrate your body. So you're, you know, all these things simply to 
run a marathon and be able to say I did it, which is you know not very many people in the general populace probably can say truthfully. truthfully. Um, and I remember even back in high school, my brother, who some of you met yesterday, who is older than I am and probably balder than I am. In high school, he was a wrestler, <clears throat> and his his natural weight was about 155, and they had him wrestling at 145. So that meant every week after the wrestling meet on Friday, all the wrestlers and everybody would go out to Bridgman's, and they'd pig out, and they'd eat all weekend, and by Monday, they'd be back up to their north, put on 10 pounds over the weekend. And then he'd have to cut 10 pounds by Friday for the next meet. And this is just for high school wrestling. Now, my brother was a bear to live with during wrestling season because all week long he can't, you know, he can only eat a few bites of this and a few bites of that. He can only drink so much water, you know, he's Thursday and Friday he's just spitting. I am to try to get water, you know, water weight because they got to make weight. You don't make weight, you don't wrestle. It was a, and, and putting on those sweatsuits that you put on and, and running every night to, to just cut all this weight. Doing all that just for high school wrestling. Um, he did make it to a state wrestling meet and didn't never won it. And there you go. I mean, that all this effort, all this effort for, I mean, for a very terrible prize. I mean, if he had won it, that'd be 30 some years ago. He probably wouldn't even remember it. Today. Well, he'd remember it, but I always thought wrestling was kind of a silly thing, but I wasn't very strong. So. I, I would never have done that. But, uh, but that's the kind of thing that athletes do. And they do it, and, and they, they sacrifice, and that, that's the temperance that we're talking about here. Um, it, uh, notice that you, you're all familiar with the um, fruits of the Spirit. In Galatians 5.23, it, you know, it mentions this same word again, self-control, as being one of the fruits of the Spirit. And I, I think it, it's interesting because... You know, self-control as a fruit of the Spirit, where does that come from? Where do fruits of the Spirit come from? You don't just hold your breath and go, I'm just going to go like this until I've got self-control. Yeah, I mean, you don't just get self-control by doing stuff like that. It, it's a fruit of the Spirit. Well, where does that come from? Um, Ephesians 5.18, and I know, uh, I believe it was Bruce that's talked about, Rosengren has talked about this before. It says, and be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. And having, having a background of uh, a Pentecostal church that we went to, you know, being filled with the Spirit has kind of a different meaning uh, there. But I, I think Bruce was, was on when he said the being filled with the Spirit is we're talking about the measure of control that we give the Holy Spirit in our lives. Again, it's the power of the will under the control of the Spirit of God it, we giving the Spirit control in our lives, and the fruits of the Spirit then come out of that. Um, various verses in the Scripture talk about walking in the light, abiding in Christ, walking in Christ, being filled with the Holy Spirit. And and I remember I, I wrote this note down, and I believe it was when Bruce was Bruce was here. We're talking about the same thing, and we're talking about uh, the amount of the, the measure of control that we give the Holy Spirit in our lives. And, and that's where temperance comes from. It's a matter of the will, self-control. The second thing that he talks about in this verse 25 in chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians, he says, they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. The runners 
We're pursuing a very, very temporary prize, but we pursue an eternal crown. And again, I've mentioned before, some Christians may think it sounds kind of tacky to talk about rewards and doing things for rewards, but God knows us, and he has laid it out in the scriptures that rewards are given to believers for doing the right thing. And, and we might ask ourselves the question, why? Why, does one, why would one choose self-control? Why do we do that? And, and you, if you were wanting to appear very spiritual, you might say, well, we would simply do it for God. That is the only reason why we do it. And that's a good reason. I'm not making light of that. First uh, Peter chapter 2, there's some very good verses, and there are many that I could, we could pick out here. But First Peter 2, 9 says, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may be your good works, which they shall behold, glorify... Whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. It's not just my eyes. I got some underlining there. that I crossed out some of the... Yeah, right. <clears throat> but notice, again, notice the sequence. You, you are a chosen... Gen- you have received grace from God. You have been chosen and you have obtained mercy from God. And then he goes into, dearly beloved, abstain from fleshly lust. The, the reaction to this, and this is a very valid, and I, again, I, I didn't mean to make light of that, uh, of, of the, the reason why we would choose to serve God, being because we love him and because of what he has done for us. But God has also laid out the fact that there are rewards for doing what uh, he has called us to do. For As we are Christians, there are rewards that he has laid out. There's a number of verses that talk about that. Uh, Revelations 22.12 you don't want to turn there, it's a short one. Jesus is speaking and says, Behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me to give every man according to his, as his work shall be. We're not talking about salvation here. We're talking about the prize, the rewards for living a life that is godly. Uh, we, have, we have covered it before, earlier in 1 Corinthians, but the verses in 1 Corinthians 3, 11 to 15, that talk about the... Uh, a man building upon the foundation of Jesus Christ with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble. This is verse 12 in chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians. Every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. So God, again, has laid out for us the fact that there are rewards for diligently following the Christian life. What are some of these rewards? Let me quickly turn to the crowns that we can obtain. Uh, 2 Timothy 4 8. 2 Timothy 4 8. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all. 
unto all them also that love his appearing. So a crown of righteousness. This is one of those eternal crowns that does not perish, that we can, uh, that we can achieve. Uh, James 1.12. <clears throat> Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. The crown of life. 1 Peter 5.4 And when the chief shepherd shall appear, ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. These are the prizes that we are striving for. And so his point is here, are we going to be outdone by athletes who are striving after fairly trivial crowns? That, but, but look at the temperance, look at the self-control, look at the discipline that they will put in to achieve these very, very temporal prizes when God is offering us an eternal, eternal crown. Are we going to be outdone by that? I remember uh, back in 1991, when we didn't have a television, but I borrowed one when the World Series came about because the Twinkies were in the World Series again. Watched almost every minute of the World Series except Game 5, which they got pounded in, and I got so disgusted I turned it off. But watched every other minute of it. Thinking, all right, you know, the Twins, they win the World Series. That was 14 years ago, for crying out loud. And, you know, and about, you know, two days, you know, you kind of go, oh, hey, uh, hoo-hoo. And then the next day, you got to go back to work, and life goes on, and, and uh, you know, big deal. And, and, I, and I wonder if it means... It probably, I'm sure it means more to the guys that actually played on the team still today, but 14 years later, how much does it mean to them? You know, the, the, the roar of the crowd has died away. Uh, I heard somebody define the word maturity once as this. Maturity is being able to put off present pleasure for future gain. And that's a, I think that's, not just a secular definition, that's a good spiritual definition. Being able to, spiritual maturity, being able to put off present pleasure for future gain. And that's what he's talking about here. The discipline that is required to live a godly Christian life. Uh, there was a time, a number of years back, when we uh, were, were trying to get into eating in, in nutritious ways. And uh, we're trying to stay away from processed sugar in foods, which pretty difficult to do because just about every food that's out there has processed sugar in it. But we were trying really hard to do that. And, th- and there was a period of time, and I don't say this to pat myself on the back because, trust me, I'm not there anymore. But uh, there was a period of time when I just said, you know, I'm not, I will not partake uh, of any foods that have, well, as best I can, processed sugar, but certainly not like the donuts. And, the, you know, you work at a place like IBM, you work in the office, there's donuts around all the time. I mean, um, Policemen are out putting their life on the line, getting shot at. Uh, IBMers are putting their life on the line, eating donuts every day. It's a little bit slower, but it kills you just the same. Uh, but people would bring in, I, I'd never take one. It was there. I, I just had made up my mind. I was not going to. And the temptation was less. It was just kind of like, I can't. I just can't have that, so I won't. Well, I'm not there. I had a donut downstairs here a few minutes ago. But for a period of time, for a, again, for a very temporal reason. It was for health reasons um, and, and other things to stay away from that thing. And again, sometimes we can do it for what are, in the, in the grand scheme of things, are fairly trivial reasons. 
Okay. And so again, the question, are we going to be outdone in our striving for our eternal prize? Are we going to be outdone by these temporal things that are not worth very much? So then he continues on in verse 26 and 27. His response to the question of, are we going to be outdone by these athletes? He says, I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, so fight I, not as one that beateth the air. We find those definitions. Uncertainly. I thought this was a really interesting word because the Greek for this word means aimlessly or uncertain or indistinct. So I look at the word indistinct in my 1828 Webster's Dictionary, and it says the following. I think this is really interesting. It says indistinct means not distinct or perceptible, not separate in such a manner as to be perceptible by itself. The parts of a substance are indistinct when they are so blended that the eye cannot separate them or perceive them as separate. And I thought to myself, man, think about ourselves as Christians in an ungodly world today. Are we so separate that we can be perceived as being distinguishable from the world? I started thinking about it, and I'm thinking about myself and... Uh, Two, I'm not pointing my fingers at you saying, you evil people are so worldly. That's not my intent at all. But I started thinking about what we fill our minds with, our eyes, our ears, our, our you know music and movies and how we dress and how we talk and how we act. Can people look at us and perceive that, they're, that we are distinguishable from the world? That He's saying, I am going to run not as indistinguishable. You know, I'm not, I, I want to run so that people know that there is a difference in my life. He says, so fight I. The word fight literally comes from the, the Greek word to box. I mean, it literally means to box. And it's using, obviously, metaphorically here as the, uh, the life that I'm going to live is a fight. It's going to be difficult. I'm not literally going through life punching people, or shouldn't be. But that's the word that's used here. And he says, I fight as not as one that beateth the air. You, you will have some people say that this beating the air is like shadow boxing. I would maintain that that's not the definition of beating the air because shadow boxing is something that a boxer does during his training. It, it is a legitimate thing that a boxer does to get himself in shape. Shadow boxing, you know, boxing nobody, just to get in shape and to practice his moves. That's a valid thing. What this means, talking about beating the air, is when I am in the fight and my opponent is coming at me and I'm flailing away and swinging and not connecting. For a boxer, that's not a good thing because you wear yourself out and then you, and you leave yourself open to get decked. So this beating the air, I, I want to fight as one that's not flailing away and not landing punches. That's what beating the air means here. And then he goes on in 27, he says, but I keep under my body. The word keep under, not a very good translation in the King James, I don't think, but the words uh, to keep under, that are translated keep under, means to wear out, to weaken, to beat up, to treat roughly. It literally means to strike under the eye. He's talking about he does this to his own body, to, to beat the face black and blue, to give a black eye. That's what this word literally means, and it's used metaphorically and translated in some translations as buffet. I buffet my body. And it's talking about his suppressive treatment of his body in order to keep himself spiritually fit. 
Uh, a related verse would be Hebrews 12:4, where it says, You have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. That is a picture of us as believers. It takes work to strive against the fleshly lusts, against sin. And again, it literally means to beat black and blue, to smite so as to cause bruises and livid spots. That's what he does to his body. Again, not literally, but metaphorically, he's treating himself in this way so as not to allow the flesh to win. That is the point. He says, I bring it into subjection. Subjection that's talking about to bring it into bondage. Remember the scripture that talks about two masters. There are two masters. You can serve God or you can serve the devil. And he's trying to bring his body into bondage to Christ. I've said it before. Uh, we are, as parents, we're not <clears throat> training our children to get up and be free from our um, authority. We're trying to train our children up to transfer their allegiance from us to Christ. Because you will always need to be um, have allegiance to someone, and you will serve someone. And our goal is that we should always be serving Christ. And then he says, Lest when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. Now, depending upon your theology, definitions, what people say this word castaway means. If you're the people that believe you can lose your salvation, they will talk about here saying, Paul is talking about the fact that he, you know, I don't, I don't want to, after all this work of bringing other people to Christ, I don't want to fall away and be eternally condemned. And I don't believe that's what it's talking about here because I believe very strongly that once we are saved, we are eternally secure. So what does he mean when he says castaway? The word means someone who has failed the test is rejected or reprobate. So you, you know, you could still say if you were the 